mission drift happens when through a variety of seemingly small decisions, organizations become something different than they were originally founded to be. They find the entirety of their purpose and their identity reshaped. This happens across the board to different organizations, nonprofits, and charities, and churches are not exempt. In fact, we saw mission drift within our own Southern Baptist Convention not too long ago. It wasn't too long ago that many of the professors in our seminaries and many of the pastors in our churches denied rudimentary Christian teachings, things such as the virgin birth, the Holy Trinity, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, who is the current president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, uh, took that post when this controversy was going on at the age of 33, and at the announcement of his appointment to the presidency, the student body reacted by standing and turning their backs to him. They then followed that up that when Dr. Moeller was giving his convocation address and calling uh, the faculty and students to repentance to embrace the essential elements of the historic Christian faith, they followed it up by hanging an effigy, that is a dummy that was made in Moeller's likeness from a tree that he could see swinging out the window of the chapel. Thankfully, through the efforts of Dr. Moeller and many other um, strong-spined men and women, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, along with her seminaries, has returned to the message and the mission that was almost lost. Though it was costly. The point here is, Mission drift can happen anywhere. It can happen here. And so one of the questions that I want you to ask yourself this morning is, have we drifted away from the message and mission that Jesus gave to us? This is certainly what happened in Corinth. The Corinthians had, through their overzealous asceticism, through their antinomian lawlessness, had begun to plot the course of their assembly according to the agenda of worldly ambitions rather than according to the wisdom of God. The church in Corinth, as we have seen throughout this book, was marked not by love, but by drunkenness, sexual obscenity, infighting, and one-upmanship. In other words, uh, they're not so different than us. Many of us wouldn't like to admit that. But they, like us, were a group of messy and evil people that were made right with God and brought together by Jesus. They had just simply drifted away from that which was of primary importance, that which was of first importance. 
And it's to that primary issue, that foundational teaching that Paul draws their attention this morning as he makes clear for them in the gospel by which they are to live. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to cover just the first four verses. Uh, since you did 40 last week, we'll just do four this week. Uh, the main idea, what I want you to grab hold of and take with you, is that Christians believe in the substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I want to exhort you to hold fast to and pass on this gospel. I've outlined for you, hopefully, uh, Jesus died for our sins, Jesus is resurrected, and Jesus must be received. Those are the three areas we're going to try to extrapolate on a little bit this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, many of us come here this morning rushed, just barely making it out the door. Some of us come tired, staying up too late or not sleeping well. All of us come needing to hear from you, needing to be reminded of your grace and your mercy reminded that your love for us is not performance, but upon the promise of life that you have given to those who have faith in your Son, Jesus. God, what we study today is of the greatest importance. This is the very foundation of our faith. Without the, the message that we are considering today, there is no Christianity. There is no hope. So I pray that you would focus our minds, that they might not wander, and that you would ready our hearts to hear from you, that you would pierce us freshly, with your word, that you would plunge us beneath the beautiful waves of the gospel once more this morning. This I pray, this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at, at verse 1 through 4. Paul writes, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All of this goes 
together. The cross and resurrection are Christianity. Paul is saying this is of primary importance. This is foundational. This is the pillar that upholds your faith. It's the pillar that upholds the church. This is everything. This message, this gospel, if you lose it, you've lost everything. This message, this gospel, if you can't hold tightly onto it, you have believed in vain. Because this is the only message that gives life. This is the only message that addresses our biggest problem. And if you have a Christianity that misses what is of first importance. If you have a a Christianity that is emptied of the blood of Jesus, a Christianity that leaves the body of Jesus buried beneath the earth, then you have no Christianity at all. And you are still dead in your sins and to be pitied most among men. This is the message of first importance. And Paul really just gives us two parts. and they're, They're very simple. First part is in that Christ, and Christ here is a title for Jesus. It's not Jesus' last name, right? It's a way of referring to Jesus in the same way that we refer to the president of the United States, where we just call him the president. Uh, It tells us about his office and his authority. It tells us about who he is. And so Christ tells us that this is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, the king that is to deliver his people. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Jesus didn't die for his sins. He was good. He was perfect. He died for your sins, for my sins, for our wrongdoing. And he did so in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Paul here is talking generally about the whole of the Bible, of that big story that Scripture tells He's saying Jesus is the climax of the whole story of human history. He's the person that all of the Bible tells us about. All of the Old Testament is leading us to this Jesus, to this Christ. But I can't help but have my mind drawn to Isaiah chapter 53. Most of you are probably familiar with it, and you can turn there. And as you turn to Isaiah 53, let me help to put it in context for you, the book of Isaiah can be broken apart into three portraits. Isaiah is giving us three portraits of three people, we think at the time of its writing, that will help Israel into flourishing, into the promised land, into the promises of God. And so early on in Isaiah, you have the picture of the king who saves his people. Then you have the servant who suffers for his people. And then the book closes with a portrait of the conqueror who triumphs over the enemies of his people. And what we come to find out when we view the book of Isaiah through the lens of the gospel is that these three portraits are really about one person, namely Jesus of Nazareth. And we jump into the section that has to do with the 
servant who suffers for his people. We read, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken and struck down by God. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked but was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. We also see uh, Peter comment on this in 1 Peter 2.24. He writes, He himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been. Jesus hung on a tree, torn apart, bleeding, covered in spit, so that we could be healed, so that we could be made well. He suffered for our sins because we are evil. We have earned the wrath of God. God made everything perfectly good just as he is good and we chose to follow our hearts instead of listening to God's voice. We broke God's law. If you don't believe me that, that you're evil, you can just take like the Ten Commandments test. I don't know if y'all remember when we went through the Ten Commandments and we realized very quickly, we can't keep one of these bad boys, let alone all of them. And even if we can't keep one, James tells us breaking one part of the law means we've broken the whole law and that makes us law breakers because all of God's laws work together as part of the same system. We talked about it uh, like your arteries and your heart, Right? The different aspects of the law are a bunch of different arteries that share the same heart, which is God's. 
And if you sever one of the arteries, it bleeds out and the heart stops beating. So to break one of God's laws is to break the heart of God. It's to fail to love him above all else. It is to put yourself in rebellion against him. If you're less religious, maybe this example will work for you. Francis this illustration, and so I'll use it now. You say if you put an invisible tape recorder around your neck and just wore it your whole life, and it only recorded the things that you said other people ought to do, and then at the end of your life had somebody play it back to you, you would discover that you weren't able to live up to your own expectations, that you weren't able to do the things you thought other people's ought to do. You can't even keep your own standards, let alone God's standards. We are a wicked and and sinful people. We are morally bankrupt, and we have earned the wrath of God. We've broken the law, and we deserve punishment. But Jesus has died for our sins. At the cross, this great exchange is taking place. Right? Jesus has lived a perfect life, never sinned, and earned the blessings of God. And he takes upon himself, despite the blessing that he's earned, the curse for our sin that we have earned. He takes our sins and then credits us with his righteousness. Try to illustrate this if I can. Uh, imagine a thousand years ago, there is a, we'll make him a Viking, a, a Viking king. And he owns uh, a bunch of land, but throughout the whole world, he's known as the most loving king and the fairest king that ever lived. And so one day, he discovers that someone has been stealing money from the treasury. And so he comes out, he says, listen, makes a big announcement. This isn't really a huge deal. Uh, got plenty of money, and I'm, also, I'm happy to take care of any of your needs, but stop stealing from the treasury. And a few weeks go by, and then he comes and makes another announcement. Money has continued to be stolen from the treasury. And so now we're going to punish whoever's doing it with 10 lashes. Goes, a few more weeks pass by, comes back, makes another announcement. It started to get fairly serious. I'm going to punish the thief when he is caught with 20 lashes. A couple more weeks go by, comes, money's continue to be stolen. He says to his people, whoever is caught stealing money from the treasury will receive the full 40 lashes. This is tantamount to the death penalty. Excruciating. Full 40 lashes. And a couple more days pass by, and then the thief is finally caught red-handed. There's a problem, though. The thief turns out to be the king's mother. And so he finds himself in a precarious position. He's supposed to be the fairest king that ever lived. On the other hand, 
He's supposed to be the most loving king ever. Can you really, you know, be a loving king and send your mom to death? For 40 lashes? And so the king took a day to think it over. He slept on it. The next day he woke up and he said, the law is the law. Justice is justice. The 40 lashes will be given out as judgment. And so they walk his mother down, they string her up to the post to expose her skin to the wrath of the whip. And as the executioner gets ready to unleash the punishment, the king says, hold on one second, and removes his royal robes, exposes his own back, and covers his mother in, in a hug, cocoons her. And then he bids the executioner to begin until all 40 lashes have been absorbed by his own back rather than that of his mother. The gospel says that God is perfectly just, that a penalty for sin must be paid. And it also says that God is completely loving. And he wants to show mercy to his people. And so what we see at the cross is God's justice and his mercy being upheld. We see these attributes of God, uh, his justice and his mercy, holding hands and, and kissing and working together. In his judgment against sin, we see his extravagant mercy to us. Our sins. Part two, we see in verse four. that he was buried. And this is key. Jesus was, was really dead. Like, dead, dead. Wrapped up in burial clothes, maybe looking a little mummy-like, put in a tomb that was sealed with a stone, dead. And this is important because the Bible wants to make clear for us that Jesus' resurrection is not a resuscitation but a reanimation of his dead body with life. He's buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Look back at Isaiah 53. We read the back end, the final two verses of that chapter, and we read, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. 
yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Dead men don't prolong their days. Dead men don't see the Lord's pleasure. They don't see light and become satisfied. Dead men don't carry iniquities. Dead men don't receive their portion. They don't receive spoil. Dead men do not intercede. The God-man does. Jesus does because the suffering servant of Isaiah lives, and Jesus is that suffering servant, and he lives. He bears the sicknesses and the sins of his people that he might heal his people. And not only does he heal his people, he receives honor and glory from God. He's raised from the dead. Christians believe that Jesus' resurrection is how he fulfills this scripture. That he really, bodily, got up from the dead to live again. Not not like a a resuscitation where he lives 20 more years and then he dies like Lazarus but that he raises again victorious over death, never to return to the grave. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope, provides us a reason for living, Without Jesus' death, we would be dead in our sins. Without his resurrection, we wouldn't have anything to look forward to. We wouldn't have anything to hope in. If you give uh, two men with the same qualifications, the same job, and you pay one of them uh, 10 grand a year, and you pay the other one $10 million a year, do you know which one's going to be more satisfied in their work? Who's going to work harder and, and be happier? Well, the guy that makes $10 million, right? Because his, his, his hope and his security, he, he's taken care of. The Christian is, is infinitely more blessed than that. We, we have a, a hope that is a living hope. We have riches that are unfading and kept in heaven for us. We have the hope of rising from the dead as Jesus rose. This, the cross and the resurrection are Christianity. It's how our sin is dealt with and it gives us hope for the future that we get to live life together with God bodily, right? Not disembodied souls playing harps up on clouds, right? But, but that we are bodily raised to live with God and with one another. This is really good news. Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The cross was not an accident 
It was not a contingency plan. It wasn't God twiddling his thumbs going, what am I going to do about the sins of my people? Guess this is the best way out. No, the cross was God's plan A. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened according to the Scriptures. And Peter tells us as much in his sermon in the book of Acts, in chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 22 and read for quite a while. This is what he says. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades. He's quoting Psalm 16, which we read earlier, by the way. You will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus We are all witnesses to this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but David himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, that is, Yahweh declared to my Lord, Adonai, God declared to my Lord, God the Father declared to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now look at how the people respond. Verse 37. When they heard this, They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call. This promise is for whomever God calls, whoever will answer the call of God, can be saved. Whoever will believe in this message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection can be, will be saved. And Peter says to them, 
the way that you come to faith, the way that you express your confession of Christ as Lord, the way you express your belief is through repentance and baptism. Baptism here functions as a synecdoche. That's a fancy word that just means one part represents the whole. And baptism here just represents the whole kit and caboodle when it comes to salvation. It represents regeneration, the Spirit changing our hearts. It represents confession that Jesus is Lord. It represents that repentance turning from following our hearts and starting to obey Jesus instead of ourselves. It represents actually being baptized, going down into the water and coming back up. It's a proclamation that I have begun to truly and genuinely follow Jesus. Baptism is the way that we put skin on our confession. We say to the world, I am following Jesus now. Right, Paul writes of baptism in Romans chapter 6, Are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too many walk in newness of life. May we walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The hope of a living future together with God in a world without sin comes to all who will believe. Any who will turn from their sins, stop following their hearts, and start following and continue to follow Jesus forever. It's available to anyone. Yet this glorious hope, this good news, must be received. Everyone will either receive this message of Jesus, or they will reject it. But let me tell you, there there is no other message that can save. There's no other name by which you can be saved except for Jesus. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the narrow gate by which we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the only way. I mean, if there were any other way for us to be made right with God, to have the penalty of our sins dealt with. Don't you think God would have answered Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Don't you think he would have replied, okay, no problem. There's another way to do this thing. You're right, we had it all wrong. This bloody cross business, throw it out. No. Jesus was met with a bone-chilling silence. Because there is no other way. The cross stands against all human attempts at self-salvation. It says, sinful man, you cannot do enough good things to make yourself right with God. You cannot clean yourself up enough to be made right with God. 
The only thing you can do to be made right with God is to throw yourself at his feet and beg for his mercy. The only thing you can do is say, I need Jesus. The only thing you can do to be made right with God is bring your nothing to him and receive his grace. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we can be reconciled with God. The cross is how God ends evil without ending us. Right? That God is good, and he is all-powerful, and the reason he hasn't dealt with evil yet is because he loves you. If you wanted God to deal with all the evil in the world all at once, that means that the human race would have been extinct a long, long time ago. But God permits what he hates, evil, to accomplish what he loves, our salvation. Jesus went to the cross knowing full well what was before him. He went on purpose with his eyes wide open because he loves us, because he loves you. Went to the cross to die for our sins. This Jesus must be received if we are to have salvation. And you reject him at your own peril. Rejecting this message is uh, akin to the guy who sees a tornado out of his back window and decides to cut the grass. Or perhaps closer to home, it's the, the person who is told to evacuate when a hurricane is coming and yet remains in their home. Well, when Harvey was coming up through Texas, the mayor said, Write your social security number on your arms if you're staying at home so that we can identify your body afterwards. His message was clear. There is a deadly storm bearing down on you, and if you refuse to flee, you will die. The gospel message is the same. The storm of God's wrath is bearing down on you, and if you refuse to flee, you will be destroyed because your sin remains. And God is a fair and just and loving king. The message must be received. It's the only message that saves. That's why Paul says, I want to make Clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. He says you are being saved because of the proof that somebody has actually put their real faith in Jesus plays out over the course of their whole life. The way you know that you've uh, actually begun following Jesus is that you keep following Jesus. So unless you believed in vain, it's there's a warning here, right? It's possible to believe in vain. It's possible to give a superficial 
commitment to Jesus and or his church. It's possible to put yourself in a position where you kind of play a Christian game, but you don't really believe. That you don't grab hold of the gospel message, but onto some other message, something else that the the people around you or the people in the, the church have begun to believe themselves. Have you received the gospel? Are we, do we as a church, have we as a church, continued to receive this message and to pass on this message? Or have we drifted away from this message and mission of Jesus? into something else. The mission drift happens when through small, seemingly insignificant decisions, an organization reshapes its identity and redefines its purpose. I wonder, are we more committed to our idols than we are to the gospel? What's more important to us? our facilities, or the lost in foreign countries? What's more important to us, most important to us, programs or or people, committees or Christ? I wonder, have we lost our way? I think a really great diagnostic question for us to ask ourselves is if somebody were able to take our calendar and read every prayer we've prayed this past month, would they conclude that our mission is the mission of Christ? Would they conclude that our mission is to make this message that is of primary importance the center of our lives? Or would they see something else as of primary importance? Have, have we drifted in our mission? Have we forgotten what we are about? I think we do well to, if we have drifted as a church or as individuals, to repent and to recover this message and this mission of Christ. And even if we haven't drifted, I think we do well to heed the call to recognize the importance of continuing to stand fast on this message. Friends, the cross and resurrection are Christianity. If we leave either behind, we're on to something else. If we put the cross and the resurrection in a subordinate position to anything else in our lives, we've gone off mission. And our belief might be put in quotation marks and be determined to have been in vain. The gospel must be what is of primary importance because it is the gospel 
that saves messy sinners like us and brings us together with God and with one another. So let me exhort you to hold fast to and pass on the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the message of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised from the dead to prove his person, his power, and the truth that he satisfied the debt that we owed to give us hope for the future. But we thank you that the gospel message is not just the means by which we are saved, but the means by which we grow in the faith. It's not not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the the A to Z of Christianity. That the cross is not just a part of the Bible, but it's the whole Bible story. It's its apex. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for putting this message and this call on our ears. Pray that you would help us to receive it, to respond with faith, to follow Jesus all of our days, and to live on the mission of making this good news known in our community and in the world. Help us to leverage everything that we do, all of our resources, to the end of making your name great to the end of helping those who have not yet received your word to hear and to believe. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.